you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In coming to Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 to 20, we come to one of the most controversial passages in the history of Christian thinking and the history of Christian politics. It's not a controversial passage in its meaning in Matthew's Gospel. Its controversy is in the history of Christianity. For what it's about in the Gospel, we'll we'll see presently, but it's how it's being used to support the argument for the authority of the Pope that is deeply controversial. Papacy is wrong on a whole range of different facets and aspects, apart from the misuse of this text. But this is the text that has been used to bolster up the erroneous claims of the Bishop of Rome. You can see papacy's error in lots of ways. Jesus said, call no man father, but my father, your father who is in heaven. The very word Pope means father, your papa, it's the father. Whereas Jesus said, don't call anybody father. The Lord Jesus Christ is the bridge between God and man. The Pope claims to be the pontiff, that is, the bridge between God and man. So he firstly takes the role of God the Father, he secondly takes the role of the Lord Jesus Christ. He also calls himself the vicar of Christ. The word vicar vicar means the substitute. But the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapters 13 through to 17, when he is leaving from us, said that he was going to send his substitute, the Holy Spirit. And so the Pope takes the role of God the Father, the Papa, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Pontiff, and the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the vicar of Christ. The Pope is standing in the place of God, Father, Son and Spirit. The number of errors and problems there is with the claims of papacy are mountainous. From early centuries, the Pope has claimed power and authority that the rest of the Church has rejected. As early as 154 AD, the Pope sent out a command to all the churches of the ancient world and they all blew a loud raspberry at him because they didn't see him having any particular special power or authority. And he sent Augustine into England, not the Saint Augustine of Hippo, but another Saint Augustine at the end of the 6th century to found Christianity in England. But Christianity had been there from the days of the Roman soldiers. St. Patrick lived two or three hundred years before St. Augustine came from Rome to found the church in England. Historical claims of papacy are inaccurate and wrong. The theological titles and names of the papacy are blasphemous, in fact. The authority of the Pope is really built upon the politics of the ancient Roman Empire, not upon the scriptures. But the one scripture to which is appealed is this scripture before us today and it's very hard to read this scripture without thinking of the papacy. But let's turn to the passage of Matthew itself and see what it's saying 
in Matthew himself. And we turn to page 979, if you haven't got it, in our cathedral Bibles and see what actually is happening. This is the turning point of Jesus' ministry, the turning point of Matthew's Gospel. For here we see the ultimate aha experience, as the educationalists call it, the, the moment of personal perception where the students, uh, the word we use for students is disciples, where the disciples finally get the message that the teacher has been teaching for some considerable time. Uh, Jesus has been encountering hostile rejection of his own people, the Jews. At the same time, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the other nations, have been accepting him and embracing him clearly. So, Jesus takes his disciples away from Galilee, away from the Jewish areas. He takes them into the neighbouring country in the district of Caesarea Philippi, out of Galilee altogether, into the Gentile territory, where he can talk to his disciples alone without the Jewish pressures around about them. And he asks his disciples in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man was his favourite way of talking about himself. Other people didn't talk to him that way, but he spoke of himself that way. It must have been slightly unusual and characteristic that the Gospel records how he used this title. It's a clever, quaint way in Aramaic of talking about yourself if you want to. It's the third person impersonal. In English, it's one. One can talk about oneself if one wants to, and other people know one is talking about oneself when one does. It's, it's slightly strange, but you know who's being referred to. Well, Son of Man is like that in Aramaic. However, in the Old Testament, Son of Man was used of a particular person, the coming ruler and judge of the world, a heavenly figure in Daniel 7, who comes to the Ancient of Days when the books of judgment are opened and to whom is given all power, all authority to rule over all nations for all time. We don't know who this Son of Man is. We don't know how he's come to be where he is. We, we don't know why he has given all this power and authority. But the one who comes to be the ruler of the universe at the end of the world is called the Son of Man. But nobody hearing Jesus talking about himself would immediately tweet to the fact that he was referring to himself as the ruler of the universe, coming in the clouds to, to rule the universe for all time. Uh, he was talking about himself. And we know who he is. There he is. He's the carpenter's son. Uh, we know where he comes from. He's talking our language. He comes from Galilee. We, sure, he does great miracles and has wonderful teaching, etc. But the judgment day, the ruler of the universe, only afterwards, when Jesus died and rose again, did they realise who he was? And then they realised that he was using the term to refer to himself in Daniel 7's concepts as the ruler of the universe. They, they then tumble to it, which is in part why they then keep recording it for us in the Gospel. But at this stage in the Gospel, the disciples still haven't tumbled to it. They don't realise the significance of the term. And so he says, well, who do, you, who do men say the Son of Man is? And 
they give the standard sense, the standard answers of their contemporaries in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. All of them good classic first century answers. They said John the Baptist because Herod said that. If you just go back a page to chapter 14, chapter 14 verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Herod had a really bad conscience and with good reason he had a bad conscience. He, he had executed a completely innocent man and he knew he was innocent. And so he had a very bad conscience. And so when Jesus starts doing all these miracles, Herod thinks, well, it's John the Baptist come back from the dead to, to haunt me. It's not an answer that you'll get often today. If we wandered out into George Street and say, who do you think the Son of Man is? I guarantee no one would say, oh, John the Baptist come back from the dead. It's, it's just not a 21st century answer. But it was a 1st century answer. Now, likewise, Elijah. It's not an answer that people would give today. But in the last chapter of our Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, it is promised that before the day of judgment comes, Elijah will come. And so, is this the Elijah that has been promised? Is that who it should be? Now, John the Baptist was in fact the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. He was the one that fulfilled that prophecy. But they weren't too sure. In fact, John himself wasn't too sure about this. Was Jesus the Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets? If we did wander out into George Street and start asking people, what do you think they'd say? If we said not who is the Son of Man, I don't think they'd get that one particularly. But if we said who do you think Jesus is? Or who do you think Jesus was? Well, they're standard sets of answers because we've done it many years, many times. Some say teacher, some say a prophet, some say the founder of a religion. Some say a miracle worker, uh, some say a myth, some say a legend, some say, well, he never existed. Actually, in Australia, when you do a test out in the streets of Sydney, until very recently, you haven't done it for five years or so now, so maybe things have changed, but in Australia, they're very conservative answers. They say, well, God or God's son or something like that. But the real confronting question comes in verse 15. You, who do you say that I am? Notice the different kind of question. It's not asking objective information. It's asking for personal revelation. It's not about what is the truth out there on the street. It's about what's in your heart and your mind. What do you think? You see, we can ask who did New South Wales vote for at the last election? And we can say Barry O'Farrell and the Liberal Coalition government. But when we ask who did you vote for at the last election, the answer is none of your business. It's a secret ballot. Because I'm not asking anything kind of objective about who's running Macquarie Street. I'm asking something very subjective about what you think, who you voted for, who you wanted where you stand in the political spectrum. I'm asking you about you, not about them. So when Jesus shifts the question from who do men say that I am 
to who do you say that I am, it's not just a change in language or grammar, it's actually a change in the question itself and the very nature of the question. And so when I ask you the question, who do you say Jesus is? Well, it's a threatening question. But when I say, who do people say Jesus is, you can answer me. But when I say, who do you say Jesus is, you are being put on the spot. For however you answer, the next question is going to be more difficult for you, isn't it? The next question will not be about Jesus at all, but about you and how and why you are responding to Jesus the way you are, given who you say he is. You say Jesus is God? I say, well, do you treat him as God? You say Jesus is a legend? I say, well, what do you make of history? The next question is the harder one, isn't it? You commit yourself in answering when I ask you, who do you say Jesus is? In fact, anyone with half a brain who knows they're not in the right will immediately say, well, it's all a matter of opinion and avoid the question like the plague because it tells us everything about you not necessarily much about Jesus. But to return to Matthew. When Jesus puts the disciples on the spot, Peter speaks up in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now the term Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Exactly the same thing. The word means the anointed one because anointing of kings was more important than crowning of kings. We hardly anoint them at all now, we just crown them, and so we talk of the coronation, but they spoke of the anointing. And so as Israel was looking forward to the coming of the perfect king, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. But it was more significant than that, you see, for in the time of the greatest king, the King David, God had promised that the coming of the greater king, who would be the anointed one, the Christ, the coming of that one would not only be David's son, but also God's son. My son will be your son. The one who would reign not only over Israel, but who was coming to reign over all the nations as well as Israel the one who would not only be king, but also the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who would reign not just for a season, but for eternity, setting up a kingdom that would have no end. That one was to be the son of David and the son of God. For centuries Israel had been looking for the coming of this Christ, looking for the coming of of the Christ, longing for the coming of the Christ, especially as they were conquered by the nations and living under the occupying forces of the Roman Empire. They were longing and looking for the coming of the Christ who would be the king over Israel and not only over Israel but would make Israel the top nation so that they would be the king over all the kings of the world. Now, Peter had therefore uttered the most explosive term in first century Palestinian politics. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You say that 
when Rome is in control and anybody who understands what you're saying is now is the moment of revolution. Now is the moment of rebellion. Now is the moment when Caesar is going to be dethroned because God's king has arrived. The one who is going to rule not just Israel but Rome as well. This is the turning point of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first time the disciples have really understood it and clearly expressed it, that they have known that Jesus is the Christ. From here on, the disciples are clear who Jesus is, the long-awaited King of Israel, Son of David, Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, come to establish the Kingdom of Heaven. He and they were laying down the gauntlet, not just to the rulers of the Jews in Israel, they were certainly laying down the gauntlet to them, but to the occupation of Israel by the Romans as well. They are none too clear on how Jesus is going to do it. There's a dozen of them up in Caesarea Philippi avoiding the crowds and having a conversation. It's a little hard to work out how you're going to get from there to conquering the universe. But Jesus has been so impressive, feeding thousands at a, at a time, walking across the water, raising the dead, healing the miracles of, of sickness. He is so impressive. Who knows what he can do and who would say that he can't do it? They know who he is, the Christ. They're expecting the kingdom of heaven to come on earth. They just don't know what he's going to do to be able to bring it about. More of that in the next study. But notice that this was even more than a clever deduction that they had come to on the evidences that they had on the teaching of Jesus. Their recognition of Jesus being the Christ was a spiritual perception. It's more than intellectual. Make no mistake, it is intellectual. They had been taught by Jesus. They had observed what he did, how he lived, what he said. They had the evidence of the extraordinary man right in front of their eyes before them day and night for several years. But this wasn't an intellectual decision alone. It certainly wasn't an unintellectual superstition. Faith, real faith, is never a superstition. It's always based on evidence. It's never a leap into the dark of ignorance. It's the rational conclusion to the evidence presented. I always like having discussions with anaesthetists. Uh, they always win in the discussions, but each time I go into an operation, I always have a discussion with the anaesthetist. He's a man that you need to keep on your side. I've worked out a long time ago, even more than the surgeon. And I generally say to them, you're a man of science, aren't you? And he says, they always say, yes, they're very proud of the fact that they're men of science. I've never had a woman anaesthetist, so I'll just keep on the male. You're a man of science, they say, yes. And I said, I'm a man of faith. And they say, yes. And I said, is it reasonable for me to trust you with my life? And they say, yes. And I said, but the word trust means faith. I'm putting my faith in you. Is that a reasonable, logical, sensible thing to do? They always say yes. And so I say, oh, well, then you're a man of faith too, aren't you? And they say, count backwards from ten. And then the conversation kind of finishes. 
So like I say, they always win because they fade me out once they work out what a nasty person I really am. But faith is not unintellectual. Faith is not superstitious. Faith is not ignoring the evidence. Faith is not in contradiction to science. My faith in the anaesthetist is a faith in science, is a faith in reasonableness, is a faith in... It's completely rational to have faith. I have my faith in my wife. I trust her. It, it, it's based on uh, 49 years of evidence, 44 of them living together as, uh, in marriage. I know her. I trust her. It would be stupid of me if you'd know my wife at all. You'd really know how stupid it would be not to trust her, not to have faith in her. But Peter's conclusion about Jesus is more than just intellectual. It's not that the disciples were smarter than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It wasn't that they weighed up the evidence more carefully or had a better process of analysis. Even today's people's acceptance of Jesus is not that irrational leap into the dark of superstitious ignorance. It's a judgment. It's a judgment of the mind. A judgment hopefully based upon the evidences. But the evidence is more than factual information. It's spiritual revelation. For look at verse 17. Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You ultimately cannot argue anybody into the kingdom of God. For there are no one so blind as those who will not see. Accepting the evidence has to do with willingness. It has to do with a changed heart and mind to be open to the possibility, to be willing to accept the consequences of the possibility. For if Jesus is the Christ, then I should live my life not for myself but for him. I want to live my life for myself. Therefore, I don't want him to be the Christ. That requires a change of the will, not of the mind in the light of the evidences. It requires an opening of the heart that will accept somebody else is in charge of my life, not me. It's not a question of pure intellectual detachment as if such a thing exists. It's not even a question of who Jesus is. It's a question of who are you? What are you living for? How do you intend to live in the future? Why are you living the way you are now? It's the question about you, not about Jesus. And that's why it's one of the most confronting questions you can ever be asked. Who do you think Jesus is? For if you say Jesus is the Christ, then inevitably you'll be asked, what are you doing about the Lord? On the other hand, if you say Jesus is not the Christ, you will be asked then, in your opinion, who is he? What is the evidence have you got for your conclusion? Is this your opinion or is it coloured by your sinfulness? Is it your prejudice that you just want to run your own life your own way that you'll come to the conclusion you have? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... Ultimately, it's more than an intellectual question. It's a spiritual and moral one.
for it reveals you and where you stand in relationship to life and to God. For Jesus was on a spiritual mission, as he says here in verse 18, punning on the name of Peter, which means rock. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, he comes to build his church, his gathering. He comes to gather his people, as in the day of Moses, when God gathered the people and saved that he'd saved out of Egypt and out of slavery and brought them to the Mount Sinai where they were all gathered together. And that's the word in the Old Testament that is used for church, where they all church together. So Jesus said he was going to build his gathering of saved people who, following Peter, profess him to be the Christ. Peter was the first rock in the church building. For he was the first to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the coming King of Kings. And Jesus would build the church on that first rock that the death and hell could not destroy for it's more than an earthly gathering he's building. It's a heavenly gathering that this world doesn't understand and cannot destroy. The church is not some institutional organisation of this world, be it the Church of England or the Australia, Anglican Church of Australia or the Presbyterian Church or the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. No, no, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a spiritual heavenly reality, not anything of these physical kingdoms, empires, organisations. That is not the Church. But the gathering in heaven where hell will have no word to speak and so Jesus makes the extraordinary promise of verse 19, with which I started today, that is the keys of the kingdom. Still speaking to Peter, he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. For the church that he was building, the people that he was gathering, were coming under the reign of God, where sins are forgiven or condemned where sinners are forgiven or condemned. And Peter was to be the instrument of God in declaring the bondage to sin and condemnation or the freedom from sin and salvation in the forgiveness of sins. But it wasn't Peter alone. He was just the first. I mean, look over the page to chapter 18, verse 18. Chapter 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And on that occasion, he's speaking to all the disciples. The promise that is given to Peter is the promise that is given to all the disciples because the power lies not in Peter. The power lies in the kingdom of heaven. It, lands, it, it, it resides in the gospel that is being preached. For this is what Jesus came into the world to do, to save sinners. This is why he died. This is why he rose. This is why the gates of hell will not stand against him. And this is what the apostles were to go into all the world to proclaim. Repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus by his death and resurrection. So into the hands of humans are given the keys, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ the knowledge to share with the world that in Jesus our warfare with God is over, that in Jesus' death our guilt has been dealt with, in Jesus' sacrifice for our sins forgiveness has been won, 
It's the knowledge to share with the world that in the resurrection of Jesus, the judgment day has commenced, that now is the time for repentance, that eternity starts now in this lifetime as you hear the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. The question that Jesus asked then is so foundational. Not what do others say as to who I am, but you. Who do you say that I am? And that question was not for the disciples only. And Peter's answer is still only that. It was Peter's answer. It's not anybody else's answer. So what of you? Who do you think Jesus is? For the answer to that question should determine the way you live in this world and will determine the outcome of your life in the world to come.